This is chapter 8 through part of chapter 9, page 6 and 7 in your pew Bible. I'm going to have you remain seated this morning because I want to read this text in its entirety, and it's rather long. But I think to get a real understanding of what's happening, this text all fits together as one unit. And to try to figure out which verses to eliminate was harder than just to say, let's read the whole thing. And uh, so we're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 1. And Lord willing, we'll get to chapter 9, verse 17. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind over the earth, and the water subsided, and the fountains of the deep, and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. And in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window and the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth, and then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. In the 600th, the first, in the, uh, first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, the, from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the fish of the sea into your hands. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I've given you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I have established my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many that came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be caught off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten through the second graders, through the back door. And it'll be helpful to have your Bibles open there as we go through this rather lengthy text. As a preacher, it's difficult for me to admit this, and I don't want to say it too many times, but the last few sermons have been dismal. Now, of course, not the delivery of the sermon, but, but the content of the sermon. I mean, Sam and I have been, you know, walking uphill the whole time because, you know, you have this great moment of creation. It's so beautiful. Everything's good. Everything's very good. But then you have this rather lengthy uh, piece of, of literature from Genesis chapter 3 uh, even till today where you have the fall and then you have the consequences of the fall, which is curse, a curse, and, and death. And, and then you have the flood. This, you have this human violence, and then you have God's judgment, which we talked about last week. But even though the content is dismal, it's heavy, it's weighty, it's critically important to understand that if we're ever going to see the Savior, if we don't really understand our condition, if we don't correctly diagnose the condition of our own heart, then when we look for the Savior, when we look for a solution, we're not going to look for the Savior. And so that's what we've been doing essentially the last few weeks is just really trying to diagnose the condition of our own heart. Thankfully, this morning, I am delighted to to bring before you what I would say are three objects of beauty. So the, the clouds have parted, and uh, no, no dismal sermon today, just three things to, to admire, to like stand back and just be in awe of. And they're so great, each one could be a sermon all by themselves. And so you'll hear, you'll hear probably towards the end, hey, Paul, this was three sermons. And it, it, it is three sermons, but I, we're just going to kind of skip through them quickly. And you'll have to go back later today and sort of stand back and just reread and reflect and go, 
wow, I just didn't see that. And just to stand in awe of these three beautiful things. And of course, as we see them, there are things that we need to not just admire, but to learn from as well. The first thing is just the text itself, this beautiful piece of literature, which is why I read so much of it this morning. The second is Noah as a, as a person, as a character in the story. And third is God's covenant. So these three things I want to present before you again, they each could be a sermon, but I'm just going to try to condense them down into points. The, the text, Noah, and then the covenant. So let's look at the text. If you were to begin back in chapter 6, verse 9, and you, you would move through the whole text that I read, what you would see is a beautiful, sweeping piece of literature. It's not just somebody just telling you something. It's a, it's a carefully crafted piece of literature. And you're supposed to stand back and admire Moses as an artist, as a storyteller, as the person who's delivering this content to the first congregation, the Israelites. He just didn't wake up and say, well, gosh, let me try to remember stuff. He carefully put this together. He carefully crafted it together. And you're supposed to notice this structure, and it's called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. Now, I know just when I say that, some of you are saying, Paul, I, I left my nerd glasses at home. I mean, you know, I, I just I don't have my nerd glasses with a tape on the chiasm. Come on. I'm starting to doze off right now in the first point of the sermon. But you're supposed to notice it. And I think it's easy enough to pick up a chiasm is like uh, telling something A, B, C. And then as you tell it again, it's CBA. It's like a a staircase that goes down and then it has a platform and then you come back up as the story's told and you'll see it here. And I want you to follow along with me. And I call this, and this is the title of the sermon, From Ark to Altar. So just follow along in your Bibles with me. Just notice notice this sort of stair step. Chapter 6, verse 14, Noah builds an ark. So now we're we're going down this stair step. Noah builds an ark. Chapter 7, verse 1, God commands Noah to go into the ark. Chapter 7, verse 4, in seven days there's going to be rain. Chapter 7, verse 12, there's 40 days of rain. And then chapter 7, verse 24, 150 days the water prevailed. So you have this stair step. You're building an ark. You're going into the ark. There's going to be, you have to wait seven days for the rains to come, then 40 days of rain, and then 150 days the rains prevailed. And then the hinge is chapter 8, verse 1. That's the critical verse. It's the turning point. And just notice the words, but God remembered. This is the hinge. This is where the whole story turns. And the word remember doesn't mean that God has sort of fallen asleep during the rainstorm. Gosh, hey, I don't hear any rain. Wonder what happened to Noah. That's not what's happening here. The word remembered means to act on behalf of someone. When the Bible uses that word here, especially for God, when God remembers, it means I'm about ready to act on behalf of somebody. So God looks at Noah. Of course, he knows what's happening with Noah. But now in 8 verse 1, he's about ready to act on behalf of Noah. And this hinge, now we go back up the staircase, just in reverse order, 8, 3, 
there's 150 days of water receding. You see how that's a parallel to the 150 days of the waters uh, over the earth. Then 8, 6, 40 days of rest rather than 40 days of rain. 8, 10, 7 days between sending out the dove. 8, 16, God commands Noah to get out of the ark. And 8, 20, Noah builds an altar. You see how that progression goes? It's this staircase down, there's a hinge, there's a turning point, and then there's this staircase back up. Now, there's three things I want to highlight about the structure, and I just want to need to go through these quickly because, again, these could make up a whole sermon. But the first thing you need to feel is the force of the downward spiral caused by sin. This is a, a downward spiral staircase. And the sin that got introduced in chapter 3 has returned the water to, to, to return the world to a watery chaos. So what we've talked about is it's, it's sin causes decreation. Uh, before God spoke, the water, the waters covered the world. It was, it was a void. It was formless. And now we're coming back to the same spot. The water's covering the world. And because of sin, sin causes decreation. And here's two things I want you to remember about this spiral staircase and especially how sin works, sin work, how sin works in your own life. Number one, sin desires to devour. Sin desires to devour. Say that with me. Sin desires to devour. That is just a critical thing for us to remember. Sin's ultimate goal is your total destruction. Now it comes in saying, hey Paul, I would just like one little part. Can I just rent one room in your life? Just a tiny little closet. I'll take anything you have. And it comes in and you and I think unwisely, well, I mean, it's really no big deal compared to my whole life. It's just this one little broom closet of problems. But I want you to know that sin desires to devour your whole life. It's never going to be content with one little, one little spot, one little space. It's just working its way in so it can consume your whole life. Secondly, sin is never singular. Say that with me. Sin is never singular. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, they singularly reached out and grabbed an apple. And what do we have here? The whole world is now covered in water. One person's sin, one couple's sin has affected all of creation. See, another lie, apart from just sin once one little box in your life, is that, oh, it's just going to be a problem for you. It's just you and the computer, you and your business transaction, you and your checkbook, you and your tax return. I mean, nobody's really going to know. No one's really getting hurt. This lie no one knows about, and that sin lying to you, saying it's not going to hurt anybody else. Sin is never singular. Sin desires to devour your whole life, and sin is never singular. It's always this downward staircase that's trying to get out more and more of your life, reach out and grab more of your, more of your life. And as it devours your life, sin de- desire, has a desire to devour everyone else's life around you. And if it could, it would bring all of creation back to the beginning spot of just chaos. 
So that's how sin works. You're supposed to see that in that downward staircase, that downward spiral, how sin works in our lives. Secondly, the primary purpose of this chiasm, this structure, is to highlight the hinge. So we have this downward spiral and then the hinge and then we have this upward spiral. So everything sort of points to this one place. And we're supposed to notice 8 verse 1. You're supposed to say, okay, here's the, here's the like tension point in the story. And so we want to look at that and notice the hinge is just two sweet words. These are some of the sweetest words in the whole Bible. But God. I mean, if you could just use... Two words to describe the gospel. You might say Jesus Christ. But you could use, but God. These are, these are the hinge points between grace and judgment. These are the hinge points between life and death. These are the hinge points between heaven and hell. All the way through the Bible. Not just here. Genesis chapter 3, 8 and 9. When Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called out. Oh, what great news. That God didn't just say, well, you can go on hiding the rest of your life. No, but God, he comes walking back in. He comes intersecting. Genesis 50, 20, the life of Joseph. You intended to harm me. What? But God intended it for good. Psalm seventy three twenty six. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Acts three fifteen. This very powerful sermon comes to a climax. Peter looks at the the Jewish people there at the temple and he says, "You killed the author of life, but God raised Jesus from the dead." Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, why we were still sinners. See, it's the sweetest hinge. It's the difference between me feeling judgment and me getting grace. Between me being dead and me being alive. Between me experiencing hell and me experiencing heaven. This hinge, the whole structure is meant to say, let's all look at God. Let's all look at God and see what he has done. It's so magnificent and you just want to stare at it. It's like if you're standing at the Grand Canyon. You just want to stand there and just try to take it all in. And unfortunately, we're, we're standing at the Grand Canyon going... Okay, great. Let's move on to the next thing. But but I want you to go back and just stare at how this structure helps you see how beautiful God's movement is. It's, it's a thing of beauty. God, instead of moving towards us in judgment, is moving towards you in grace. It's, it's just a beautiful thing to look at. Third thing about the structure supposed to notice from chapter 8, verse 1, going forward, that, that this it's a recreation story. And you're supposed to notice the parallels between this recreation and Genesis 1 and the actual creation. I'll point them out to you. 8, 1, the wind blows over the earth. What does that remind you of? The spirit hovering over the waters. Eight two. There's a separation of waters, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven. It's the same thing. God separated the waters in Genesis one six. 
8.11, dry land appears and the seas stay within their boundaries, just like Genesis 1.10. Then 8.17, the birds fill the skies and animals fill the land, just like Genesis 1.20. And then 9.1, Noah and his wife, just like Adam and Eve, are told to be fruitful and multiply. So you, you see this just like in Genesis chapter 1.28. So, so Noah seems to be like this new Adam. The, the world's getting a, a fresh start. It's getting a do-over. But unfortunately, the comparison here goes forward. It's not really a brand new start. It's not just compared to Genesis chapter 1. It's also compared to Genesis chapter 3. What gets on the ark? Noah. His family. Animals. And what else? Sin. So it's not a it's not a brand new start. And as you read into chapter nine, you notice that the comparison to Genesis chapter three. Noah gets drunk. Passes out naked in his tent. He's shamed and someone else has to cover him up. Same thing in Genesis chapter three. And then you read at the end of chapter 9, Noah dies. So you know Noah is not the seed of the woman. Remember that promise? You're waiting for somebody, and maybe it's going to be Noah, and it's not Noah. It's got to be somebody like Noah, but somebody greater than Noah. There's a lot of parallels between Noah and the person to come, but it's not Noah. It's got to be somebody that's even greater Somebody who's not going to take sin with them into the next world. So let's look at Noah, the second part. This is my second sermon here. At any point, if you zone out, it's fine because you're going to get a whole sermon, even if you just listen to one point. So Noah. So Noah isn't a perfect person, but he's just so compelling. And there's so much to be gained from him just by looking at his character. And I want us to think about this. Noah lived in the most corrupt, corrosive uh, culture there ever was on the earth. I think the, what, the, the culture he lived in would, would dwarf, at least the way you sort of read the text, it dwarfs any other corruption and corrosive culture that you've lived in or the world's ever known. And yet, Noah, what's Noah's uh, character? He walked with God. Doesn't seem to have anything special that we wouldn't have. And so somehow he's able to walk with God through this most corrupt and corrosive culture. And when I learn that, I'm leaning in. I'm saying, well, Noah, how do you do it? Because I live in a corrupt and corrosive culture. I can become corrupt and corrosive by the culture. How do you walk with God through a corrupt and corrosive culture? And Noah shows us three things. Number one, you walk with God by walking according to his word. Look at chapter 6, verse 22. Moses intentionally highlighting this. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. Okay, what would you do, Noah? He did everything God commanded. Chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded. 
And then you notice in, in our story in chapter 8, verse 16, Noah's, you know, the, the, the ark has landed. He sent out these birds and he sees the dry land. And then verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife. See, Noah doesn't move unless God says the word. And then when God says the word, Noah keeps the word. Noah's like this living example of Psalm 1. Remember that psalm? Blessed is the man who does not walk in these ways, right? But instead, what does he do? He meditates on the word of God day and night. And so even though he's in the middle of this corrupt and corrosive culture, Noah's like a tree planted by, by the spring of living water. He's nourished by the word. He hears God's word. He obeys God's word. And he bears fruit. Incredible, incredible fruit. So if you and I, if we, if we hope to have any success in walking through our culture full of corruption and corrosion, then we have to be people who must move according to God's word. Second thing, this is very difficult that Noah does. He waits on God. The word, secondly, he waits. Genesis chapter 5, 32 tells us that Noah walked with God through a corrupt culture for at least 500 years. Noah had to wait 500 years for God to move. He's walking through this culture. He knows it. And at some year, around 500, God says, hey, I'm going to move, Noah. And I'm going to move in 120 years. Now, just try to imagine that for a moment. You've been waiting for God to move, and it's been 500 years. And he comes to you and say, I'm just about ready to move. And you go, great, tomorrow? No, 120 years from now. In a culture that paces in front of the microwave. Imagine having to wait 100, 620 years for God to move. Finally, on the ark, and this may have been the hardest part to wait, Noah's on the ark first for 40 days, it rains, and then he has this 150 days of receding, and then he has these two seven-day situations with the birds, and so we got some 250 days at least. And think, these 250 days are some of the scariest days in Noah's life. Imagine what the, the first 40 days must have been like. They're in basically a wooden coffin. And they're the only ones alive in the whole world and and the turmoil of the seas. And they're stuck in this coffin with their kids. Or their kids are stuck in the coffin with their in-laws. I mean, that would be terrible, would it not? And plus, you got a zoo with you. And so you're stuck in this particular situation. And what's really interesting when you read this text is that God says, Noah, get into the ark. And at the end, he says, Noah, get out of the ark. But he never speaks to Noah in between. In the scariest time of Noah's life, 
when everything seemed to be resting on whether he would survive, the whole world seemed to be in the balance. At that moment, God is silent. But Noah waits on God. And my question to you, if God shows up and says, hey, I'm just about ready to move, it's going to be 120 years from now, is that okay? If he puts you in a place and then says, I want you to go here, I want you to do this, I want you to be involved with this, whatever it is, and you know he's put you in that place, and then you don't hear from him, can you still wait on him? Or do you have to take matters in your own hands and make things happen because it just doesn't seem like God's moving on your time frame? I mean, for, for, for God, a thousand years is what? It's a day. So this whole event, it's less than a day. This is like 12 hours for God. But for us, imagine having to wait on some promise 500 years, 120 years. So Noah waits. How do, you, how do you make your way through a corrosive and corrupt culture? You live according to God's word. You wait. Finally, you worship. Noah gets out of the ark immediately, 8, 20, 22, and worship. When you've been rescued from complete catastrophe, it's not hard to worship. If you just need help and you're coming to church, it's, it can be hard to worship. If that's all, I just, I got a little tweaking that needs to happen and I'm hoping churches, the church can help me. You're not going to be a good worshiper. But if you've been rescued from utter catastrophe, then you're going to be like, yes, God did something I couldn't possibly do. So Moses, I mean, Noah comes out going, yes, the first thing I want to do, first thing I want to do is worship. How do you make it through a corrupt and corrosive culture? You've got you've to live according to his word. You've got to wait on God. You've got to be somebody who worships. Those are the three things. Now, I want to stop here and just make an application point, a comparison point. Because remember, Moses is delivering this sermon. He's the storyteller. And he's delivering it to a particular congregation. And his congregation are the Israelites, the ones who've just come across the Red Sea. And now they're on this 40-year journey. Imagine 40 years. That doesn't seem like anything compared to this. But they're, they're on a 40-year journey. They're out of slavery and on their way to the promised land. And they have a 40-year journey. And, and Moses is telling them this story about how Noah was somebody who lived according to the word, was somebody who waited, and somebody who worshipped. He's telling that to this first congregation. And if you know anything about the Israelite congregation, if you read through Exodus... As soon as they get across the Red Sea, as soon as they get out of slavery and they're on their way to the promised land, they have this great celebration. And about three days later, what happens? They're not waiting. They're not worshiping. They're not living according to the word. What are they doing? It starts with a W. They're whining. Oh, it's so painful. I mean, when you read through it, you're like, what's wrong with you people? 
I mean, you've seen some of the most incredible things. And here, on your way, yes, you are in a desert. It is going to be difficult. But you're, on, you're out of slavery. Praise the Lord. You're on your way to the promised land. Praise the Lord. Yeah, you got 40 years in between. But praise the Lord. And they whine the whole time. I mean, from the very beginning to the very end. There's not enough food. There's not enough shelter. There's not enough water. Hey, can we just go back to Egypt? They grumble. They complain. A couple months ago, I was getting my hair cut. And the lady who was cutting my hair was talking to another stylist. And this other stylist was saying, hey, do you, do you remember uh, old lady Miss Smith? I don't know who the lady was. Oh, yeah, well, she just recently died, the other stylist was saying to my stylist. And, you know, I'm just sitting in there going, I'm glad my haircuts are short, you know, because just the chatter is not something you're very interested in. And Yeah, well, you know, old lady Miss Smith, she just died. And then they start talking about Miss Smith, who was a regular customer, would come in every week or two weeks or whatever. And what the, the stylist was mostly remembering about old lady Miss Smith was how when she came in, she constantly complained. And my style says, oh, yeah, I remember when she was in, she always complained about something. They said, well, you, do you know what? The, the other style said, you know what? They, the funeral home called me and asked me to style her hair one last time. Because you know, there's the funeral visitation. You've got to have your hair. This seems strange. I know what our, our culture. You're dead and you've got to have one more hairdo. So she goes, she goes to the funeral home, the, the, the morgue, and she makes this lady's hair look good because there's one, one more look. And, and the stylist said to my stylist, hey, do you know what the best part of this last hairdo was? She never complained once. So are you Noah or are you the Israelites? Really? Are you just someone whose heart wants to complain? You want to whine? Yes, you've been saved from slavery. Yes, you're in 40 years of a desert. It is going to be difficult. There is going to be some time when there's not enough water, there's not enough food, there's not enough shelter, and the other way looks better. That's going to happen. But when that happens, how do you walk through that kind of culture? You wait. You have the word of God that nourishes your soul and you worship. You don't whine. You don't complain. So Noah's character, so worth our study today. Because we live in that kind of situation and we want to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, how, how might we be helped by Noah's character? Third Point, third sermon this morning. God's covenant. You see it in chapter 9 and following. Huge points could be made here. First thing, 9, 1 through 7. God calls for Noah and all those who come after him. If we had time to read these verses again. He calls for Noah to produce and protect life. Life is valuable to God. He has to remind Noah. He has to remind the followers of Noah. Because think about it. They've just come out of this massively destructive moment. And he's saying, I, I want you to produce life and I want you to protect life. 
Life is extremely valuable. Nine, verse one, produce life. Nine, five, and six, you need to protect life. God wants humanity to know that God is pro-life. See, these are huge implications for us today. In a culture that doesn't really protect life. You know, one of the great things that we do, and we get to see it because we live on the North Carolina, North Carolina coast, is when those sea turtles come ashore, right? And they, you know, I don't know how these people figure it out, but there's a whole army of people who do this. And if you had time, I mean, it's super cool. And they you find this nest, and then, you know, they, they have the army around these nests. You can't touch these nests, right? And then they tell you, hey, it's some number of days this nest is going to break open. And then the ones that don't come, they excavate them out, and they do it at night. And you've got to turn all the lights off because they go to the ocean. It's really a, it's really, a really neat thing. We're, that's part of what we're supposed to do. We are the stewards. We're the vice regents for God, and we're supposed to protect life. We're trying to let life flourish. So we do everything our, we can to put a barrier around these eggs, and then when, when they hatch, we do everything we can to get them back into their natural environment. We do everything we can for turtles and very little for human life. It's so sad. Human life can be sold for green pieces of paper. So God wants us to know he's for life. He's for his whole creation, which is our our second point. Notice the extent of the covenant. Notice in chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. These might kind of catch you off guard. I've established my covenant with you and your offspring... That's natural. But then notice verse 10. And every living creature that is with you. I'm not just establishing my covenant with you, Noah. I'm establishing my covenant with all of creation. Same thing gets said down here in verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature. And again in verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Isn't that interesting? So the extent of the covenant is God, the creator, loves his creation. And he's rescuing not just humanity, he's rescuing all of creation. This is such a dynamic, a a huge story. He's just not coming down to say, I'm rescuing you. That's how we think. I gave my life to Christ. Well, praise the Lord, but you're not the only person on the world. And he's also rescuing the whole planet. So when young children say, will there be dogs in heaven? Yes, there's going to be dogs. I don't know about your dog. But I mean, yes. Yes, he's rescuing all of creation. Why do you think they got on the ark? Because he loves his creation. God loves looking at the beauty of the things that he's created. And he's rescuing you. And he's rescuing all of creation. Again, just a huge point for us, but we don't have time to talk about it. You can go home and admire it. Talk about it. Number three, the bow, verse 13. Some translations go ahead and uh, put in rainbow for that because they are referring to the rainbow. But the Hebrew word is just bow. It's a warrior's bow. So when the when clouds come on the horizon for Noah, imagine how frightening that could have been for him the first time it rained. 
when, when something heavy appears on your horizon, that's when a rainbow appears. It doesn't appear in a bright blue sky. It appears when there's water in the air. And what's supposed to happen when the rainbow appears? Think about this. The rainbow appears in the sky, and what happens? Here's what I think I would have answered if I wasn't careful in my reading. Well, we see the rainbow, and we remember that God's not going to flood the earth. Doesn't that sound like the right answer? Your kid asks you a question, and you say, oh, there's the rainbow. Remember, God's not going to flood the earth. And, of course, that's true, but that's not really what the text says. Notice, notice the text. Verse 14 and 15 and verse 16. Let's look at verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember. The bow is primarily so God remembers, not so that you remember. I would have said, when you see the bow in the clouds, then you remember. But God says, when you see the bow in the clouds, you remember that I'm remembering. See, the most important part of this whole salvation process is not you, it's God. And you need to remember that God is faithful. You don't remember that you're faithful because you're not faithful. What you need to do, especially when you come for communion, is say, I'm remembering that God has been faithful. Amen. I'm not remembering about me. Please don't make my salvation about me. Make it about what God has done. And when you look up at the bow in the sky, you're supposed to say, I'm remembering, praise the Lord, that God is remembering. So that even if I forget, guess who's always going to remember? God's going to remember. That's the best news you could ever have. Is that God himself is remembering. And what remembering means He's taking action on your behalf. I'm going to save you by grace. I'm going to get you all the way home. So when you're in the middle of the desert, you wait. You worship. You follow after God's word. And you remember that he's remembering. The bow in the sky, God has hung up his war bow. Notice how the bow points. You put an arrow in a rainbow, which way is the arrow going to shoot? The arrows of judgment that you and I deserve are now aimed towards God. So somehow, when you see Noah... You say, he's not the Savior. But somebody's coming. And all the arrows that should come to me are going to go to him. Let's pray together. Lord, this is uh, so, so many beautiful things to see. You could spend your whole life just looking at these things, marveling at what you've done And, of course, the greatest marvel of all is that we, we come at a, 
a time and at a table, and we, we do this in remembrance of you, and then we think, yeah, but the most important part is not me remembering, but you remembering me. You're the one that took the arrow that should have pierced my heart. And so you look at your disciples and you say, this is the new blood of of a covenant that I'm making with you. This is my body that is going to be broken for you. You should take and eat and you should remember that I'm remembering and I'm going to be faithful. Lord, would you bless these elements in a way that really encourages your people? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The musical play, and if you've made that commitment to the Lord, you're the one that maybe you're walking in the desert, but you're trying to walk Him, you come and take.